Good morning, Oceanside Sanctuary. It's good to be back with you again on Sunday morning here on Facebook and YouTube. Today, we're going to continue our series on our new vision and mission commitment here at the church at the Oceanside Sanctuary. Many of you have been a part of the process that began last fall to create a new vision and mission for our church here. It's something we do every couple of years, and we just finished ratifying that in January. And so we're going through a teaching series on that so that we can unpack what it means for us to be a church that is on mission with what the Spirit of God is doing. Before we jump in with today's uh, segment on being an impactful church, I just want to ask that you would join with me for a moment, center your hearts and your minds, and let's say a prayer together. God, we thank you again for this opportunity for us to gather as a people to uh, sing together, to pray the Lord's Prayer together, to center our hearts and our minds on Scripture, and to learn together what it means to be on your mission, to be about your work, to follow your Spirit as you lead in our homes and our workplaces our schools, and of course, hopefully right here in our church, in our neighborhoods, and in our city. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been talking primarily about our vision statement in these segments. So just as a reminder, our new vision here at the Oceanside Sanctuary is that we would be a collective expression of inclusive, inspiring and impactful Christian spirituality wherever it is needed. Now, the first week we unpacked that first key word to, to be an inclusive church, and I said that being inclusive corresponded with our first core value to be an inclusive community of faith. And what that means, of course, is that anybody is welcome to fully participate in our church, that we do not discriminate on the basis of race, color, creed, gender, or sexual orientation, that no matter who you are, no matter what your identity is, there is no out group here at the Oceanside Sanctuary, that you have full access to be a part of our church. And we believe that is a faithful expression of the gospel. And then last week, we talked about what it means for us to be inspiring. And we talked about how that correlates to our second core value, which is relational spirituality. And I said to you that to be an inspiring community that practices a relational spirituality means that in our relationship with God and in our relationships with each other, that we are living out a life that has been breathed into by the Spirit of God, that we are empowered by God's Spirit. That's literally what it means to be inspired we are empowered to genuinely love each other. Now today we're going to talk about what it means for us to be an impactful community and how that correlates to our third core value. But before we get there, I want to just ask that you open your Bibles. We're going to use a text today from the Gospel of Matthew. So if you turn with me to Matthew chapter 25, I want to read something together with you from Matthew chapter 25. We're going to pick it up towards the end of the chapter. So if you have your Bible, just turn towards the end of Matthew 25. We're going to pick it up in verse 31. And of course, if you don't have your Bible, we'll put these words on the screen so you can follow along. Let's read this together first, and then I want to show you some of the things that I notice about this passage. 
Starting in verse 31 says this, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. And all the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, I want to pause there for a moment and just bring you up to speed. If you don't know, Matthew 25 is where Jesus has been on an extended discourse teaching about what will come at the end of the age. And so, as you can see here already, Jesus is using some uh, powerful symbolism to get across whatever his point is here. So, he's talking about angels and the Son of Man coming and the throne of glory He's talking about people as sheep and goats, so there's sort of two different groups of people. So there is a kind of judgment happening here. God is coming in glory and power, and there is a judgment happening between those who are sheep and those who are goats. So let's go back to it, verse 33, and pick it up from there. It says this, And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. And then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, When was it that we saw you hungry or gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you as a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you also did it to me. And here we have in this passage is one of the great ethical teachings of Jesus. Now, I know for many of you, you're already struggling with the judgment that's being depicted in this passage. And for some of you, you know that if you read further, there is a vivid depiction of what we tend to think of as hell at the end of this passage. Because Jesus says this to the sheep, that is, to the righteous ones on his right hand. He says, well done. You treated these people who were the least. You treated these people who were hungry and thirsty and sick, those who were imprisoned and naked. You treated all of them well. And by doing that, you treated me the same way. And But later, he switches and speaks to the goats in a parallel fashion. He says, You know, when you saw hungry and thirsty and naked and sick and imprisoned people, you didn't help them. And they said, well, when did that happen, Lord? When did we fail to help those people? When did we fail to help you? And he again identifies his own presence with those who are in the greatest need. And then it ends with this really terrifying passage. It says that the king will say to those goats, depart to that eternal fire that was prepared for the angels. And of course, we tend to think of hell. I want to just pause here and ask that you set aside this question about hell. Because for any Christian who is concerned about goodness and righteousness and the ethical treatment of people or the goodness of God, even the goodness of God himself, 
there's naturally this question that arises, how could a good God send people to hell? But I just want to say to you that that is not what this passage is about. And when we get sidetracked by the question of hell, then we miss, I think, the most important piece of Matthew 25. So what's happening here is Jesus is not teaching about the literal existence of hell or who's going to hell or how that's going to work. Rather, Jesus is responding to a question that was asked all the way back in Matthew chapter 24, verse 3. Again, if you have your Bibles, you can turn back there with me. And I want you to see the bigger context of what's happening here so that you can appreciate the bigger point. Matthew chapter 24, verse 3 says this, When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when this will be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. That key phrase there is, the end of the age. Now, right before this, Jesus made a symbolic reference to what they would have understood to be the end of the age, or sometimes in the Old Testament, what is called the day of judgment or the day of the Lord. And when Jesus refers to the day of the Lord, his disciples, they get very excited and they come to him and they say, tell us when this is happening. Tell us when the end of the age is coming. And it's understandable that they're excited because as Jewish people in the ancient Near East, as Jewish people living in the first century, they are living under the yoke of oppression under Roman rule. They have been existing this way under oppressive rulership by foreign nations for generation after generation, for hundreds of years, really, one successive enemy after the other has conquered Israel and carried them off into captivity. And then a remnant re returns and they rebuild whatever they possibly can. And then another enemy comes in and conquers them and exploits them and, and treats them poorly. And this is especially difficult for Israel, for the Jews at that time, because they have a powerful identity as the people of God, as the people who serve the one true God. And so they are wrestling amongst themselves with, how is it that our God can be the one true God if all of these nations with their pagan gods, their false gods, their immoral worship practices, how is it that we are constantly conquered and subjected to the exploitation of these other nations when our God is the greatest. And so they look forward to what the prophets begin to call the day of judgment or the day of the Lord. This is something that's going to happen in the future when God comes and finally vindicates God's own self and in the process of God vindicating God's self in front of all the other false gods, God, of course, will vindicate God's people. And so for Israel, the day of the Lord became a day of great hope, a day that they're looking forward to when God will finally come in victory and overthrow God's enemies and overthrow Israel's enemies and liberate Israel from the yoke of foreign oppression. And so when Jesus, in, in Matthew, towards the end of chapter 23, uses this symbolic language to refer to the end of the age, his disciples come to him secretly excited and they say, tell us, when is this going to happen? 
because they want it to happen desperately. They want their people to be liberated and vindicated and free, and this is what they believe the Messiah is going to do. But Jesus does something that they don't expect, and it's something that we see Jesus do again and again and again. See, their question is, when are you going to finally liberate us? But instead of answering their straightforward question, Jesus uses the symbolism of the day of the Lord. He uses the, the ancient Jewish prophetic symbolism of the day of judgment to turn on their heads the disciples' ideas of what it actually means to be the people of God. Because for them, of course, belonging to the people of God is simply a matter of being Jewish. It means that you've been born to a Jewish mother, that if you're a man, you're circumcised, that you eat kosher, that you celebrate the right Jewish holidays. And if you do all these things, these are markers of what it means to be the people of God. And they are confident that they're a part of the people of God for all those reasons. But Jesus totally subverts that idea of what it means to be the people of God when he goes on this extended discourse after this question. And, and I'd love for you to go back some time when you have time and just read through the end of Matthew chapter 24 and then especially Matthew chapter 25. Jesus tells parable after parable that essentially unravel that ancient notion of what it means to be God's people. And Jesus reveals that to be God's people has nothing to do with blood. It has nothing to do with circumcision. It has nothing to do with dietary laws or holy celebrations. It has everything to do with something else entirely. And the great climax of this answer is right here. Matthew chapter 25 Verse 35, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Jesus is saying something scandalous here. He's saying that being a part of the people of God, that is the sheep to the right-hand side, not the goats on the left, to be a part of the people of God means that you treat people right. But not just any people. It means especially that you treat well and good and justly and mercifully the people who are most in need in our community. It, it makes you think of so many other things that Jesus said and taught and did. It fits perfectly with everything we see in the New Testament that being a part of the people of God is, is really not about external signs, the things we wear, the celebrations we engage in. and It doesn't even have to do with internal signs like the creeds we adhere to or the doctrines we espouse or even the ideologies that we proclaim, but rather being a part of the people of God means that we treat those who are most in need with the mercy and the grace and the justice of God. In Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus starts his ministry, first thing he does after calling the disciples is go out into the countryside and do what? He heals the sick. He casts out demons. 
Jesus ministers to the physical and the mental illnesses of the people in his community. And then in Matthew chapter 10, he commissions the disciples to do the very same thing. He divides them up and he sends them out with instructions to do what? To heal the sick, to cast out demons, to minister to the physical and the mental pain and suffering of the people in their community. You see this unpacked over and over again in the New Testament. Just last week, when we looked at Romans chapter 12, we saw that the natural, logical outworking of a life that is relationally connected to God, that is inspired by the Spirit of God, is a life of love. Paul, at the end of Romans chapter 12, says this, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Love each other. Bear each other's burdens. This is what it means to be a part of the people of God. Ultimately, it means to live out the ethical commitments of a God who is good and just and ethical. James sums it up beautifully in chapter 1, verse 27, when he says, Pure religion is this, it's care for the widows and the orphans in need. And when we hear that passage, don't we all just resonate with it? Doesn't it just make all the sense in the world that what religion really should be all about is caring for people in need, not the rules and the regulations that mark some of us as worthy and some of us as unworthy, not the things that we fight about in conferences, not the things that allow us to demarcate those who are outside the grace of God while the rest of us are inside the grace of God. No, I think we all know intuitively that to be a part of the people of God means that we treat other people well, especially those who are in need. This is, as some of you know, National Women's History Month, and one of my favorite heroes of the past, who is a woman, is Jane Addams, born in 1860. Jane Addams has the incredible distinction of being the very first woman to ever receive the Nobel Prize in 1931. Jane Addams uh, founded the first settlement house in the United States in 1881. A settlement house back in the 19th century was sort of the first version of what we might think of today as a nonprofit that helps those who are poor and helps those who are hungry. And it went on to create a whole movement of settlement houses in the United States that were dedicated to helping those who were abjectly poor in the United States. This was an incredible need after the Civil War tore the United States apart and created mass migration from the South to the North, created huge pockets of poverty amongst people of color because of the discrimination they experienced. In the middle of all of that, Jane Addams Jane Addams, who as a young woman graduated from seminary at a time when women rarely went to college, Jane Addams went on to establish these incredible houses of charity and later even helped to found the first school of social work at the University of Chicago. She created an entire movement of social concern and social good. And one of my favorite quotes of Jane Addams, I think, beautifully illustrates the kind of impact that people of faith are supposed to have in their society. She says this, In the unceasing ebb and flow of justice and oppression, we must all dig channels as best we may, that at the propitious moment somewhat of the swelling tide may be conducted to the barren places of life. 
I love how she describes goodness and justice and liberation as channels of living water flowing into those places that were previously dry. This is the work of the church. It's not about what we believe or even how we worship. It's how what we believe and how we worship flows out of us to create a world that is good and right and true for everyone. This is our task as Christians, and we take it seriously at the Oceanside Sanctuary. Our third core value along these lines is organizing for justice. And so just as we are an inclusive community and just as we practice our relational spirituality, so also we are dedicated to organizing for justice, because we believe this is really the work that we are called to. And at this church, at the Oceanside Sanctuary, we do that in a number of ways. Through Sarah's Hope Food Pantry, we are working every week to feed those who are hungry in our neighborhood, and we need your help to do that. Prior to the pandemic, we fed homeless people and hosted homeless resource fairs uh, every single month here, have been doing that for years, and that's something we are looking forward to getting back to after the lockdown has been lifted. Recently, we started an anti-racism team here, and it's part of our new set of priorities here to pursue anti-racism work, and that team is working on a course that will help us at our church to better reckon with white supremacy and white nationalism and do the hard work of anti-racism first in ourselves and then in our community and likewise, we are committed to coming against the bigotry that exists in our community against the LGBTQ community. Finally, we are committed to advocating for policies that help the hungry, the poor, and the exploited here locally in Oceanside, in the state of California, and even in the nation as a whole. Because we believe that changes in policy have widespread implications for the poor in our country, and we will advocate for the changes that have a material impact for good on those who are suffering. I think my favorite passage in Scripture that speaks to this kind of life, the life that is committed to justice, is Micah chapter 6, verse 8, and you've probably heard it before, but Micah 6, 8 simply says this, What does God require of you? to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. And it beautifully and poetically summarizes what an impactful life of faith can look like. And I want to end today by sharing with you one last quote from Jane Addams, where she takes that same passage, Micah 6.8, and she expounds on it a little bit more. Jane Adams says this, The Hebrew prophet made three requirements from those who would join the great forward-moving procession led by Jehovah to love mercy and at the same time to do justly is the difficult task. To fulfill the first requirement alone is to fall into the error of indiscriminate giving with all its disastrous results. To fulfill the second solely is to obtain the stern policy of withholding. And it results in such a dreary lack of sympathy and understanding that the establishment of justice is impossible. It may be that the combination of the two can never be attained, save as we fulfill still the third requirement, to walk humbly with God, 
which may mean to walk for many dreary miles beside the lowliest of his creatures. That is an amazing insight into what it means for us to live an impactful life. Because to advocate for those who can't advocate effectively for themselves for whatever reason is not a glamorous or thankful task, but rather it puts us directly in relationship with those who are most in pain, and it means that we are willing to feel that pain too. Today, as we end, I just want to leave you with this one question. Uh, That question is simply this. What kind of impact do you want to have as a follower of Christ in this life? What is it that you want to give yourself to that you can make a difference in because God has so inspired you by God's Spirit that you can't help but live an impactful life for Christ. Let's close with a word of prayer. God, thank you so much again for today and for this opportunity for us to gather, to be challenged by your scripture, to be challenged by the example of Christ, and to encourage each other to live an impactful life. We pray that you would inspire us by your spirit and that you would help us to overcome the boundaries that exclude others and to advocate effectively for those who are in need. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Hey, Oceanside Sanctuary, it's Caden. Um, I've got a few quick announcements for you. I hope everyone has been doing well, and it's great to see you this morning. Um, So let's go ahead and get started. Um, As always, if you are new, or just in general, if you do want to connect with the church, or you have any questions, you want to get in contact, etc., anything like that, go ahead and do so at um, www.oceansidesanctuary.org slash contact. That's going to be where you can get in contact and find out anything you need to know. Or like I said, if you're new and you just want to connect, say hi, reach out. That's a perfect place to do so. Um, Second off, it is Women's History Month, and we are going to be doing um, some information and posts about that. I'm going to turn that over to Rebecca Riley to explain some of those things we're doing. Um, So I'll go ahead and have her um, talk about that right now, and I'll see you in a second. Hi, everyone. My name is Rebecca Riley. I'm a part of the anti-racism team here at Oceanside Sanctuary. And part of that meant that I got to participate in bringing you all the Black History Month content. Um, And I hope you all really enjoyed that. This month is Women's History Month. And so we want to provide a couple of ways for you to engage in that. So first, we'll be having weekly profiles on women of faith. You'll be able to see those on the church blog as well as on our social media. And secondly, we really want to invite you to participate. So what we're inviting you to do is to submit stories about the women in your lives who have positively impacted you. So you you can submit a video, audio, or a written story of, of women who have impacted you in your life. And you'll be able to submit those to us and then we'll compile them into a presentation that we'll share with all of you at the end of the month. So for more information on how to submit, just go to OceansideSanctuary.org slash blog. All right. Awesome. Thank you, Rebecca. Um, So post-COVID, we have a survey as COVID cases are rapidly declining and the vaccination rates are rapidly increasing. I hope a lot of you guys are, you know, starting to get access to vaccines or you have started one or both of your doses or just one, you know, if you're doing one of the ones that requires that. 
Um, but as I said, as those rates are rapidly decreasing and the vaccines are becoming more available, we're beginning to plan for a return to in-person church and to in-person worship sometime in the next few months. And your input will help us make the best decisions possible as a church to kind of go forward with that. Um, so we have a link. You go ahead and head over to um, bit.ly slash OSC after COVID. That's bit.ly slash OSC after COVID. Um, and I'm sure we'll have a link to that on the screen or somewhere that you guys can find, um, of course, on the website too. Um, and you go ahead and go ahead and take that brief survey. It's only about five minutes um, and that'll help us get your input on that. Um, so we also have the call and response scripture study. That's gonna be Thursday, March 18th at 6.30 p.m. And call and response is our monthly scripture study group. It approaches Bible study as a group dialogue, much like the call and response tradition, which is found in sacred literature, liturgy, and music of all kinds. Um, and it's a great way to meet new people and um, just study scripture in a new way. And I have that link here as well. It's gonna be oceansidesanctuary.org, just, um, uh, just like everything. And that's gonna be backslash calendar. Um, and so lastly, if you want to give or you want to find out how to give to the church, um, we are a 501c3 nonprofit and we do rely on the gifts and donations of people just like you that are listening right now. So if you'd like to support the mission, um, consider giving a gift today. That's going to be at oceansidesanctuary.org backslash give. Um, and that's going to be all. That's all I have today. So I hope you guys have a great rest of this week. You enjoy the um, service and I hope that everyone is staying safe hopefully starting to get vaccinated um, and don't forget to fill out that survey so we can hear from you guys about how you want to move forward with in-person worship and trying to go about figuring that out all right it was great to see everyone have a good day